I have the opportunity today to share with you from God's Word. Uh, Bryce and Anna took an anniversary trip to go watch the Memphis Tigers get beat in New Orleans. Uh, so I don't think that was part of the plan, but uh, so they, they uh, I think, are on, headed back. Um, and so I get to share with you from Exodus chapter 18 today. And it's always a privilege uh, when I get to share, uh, when I get to preach for you guys. Uh, it's something I've come to, to really enjoy and look forward to, and I have the opportunity uh, to do it. Uh, but as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, the text that we're going to look at today uh, is one that, you, that you might, we might miss if we weren't going through books of the Bible in the way that we do at Vintage, uh, because there's no uh, immediately uh, global principle that you might glean from it, but, there's, but there is something there uh, that we're going to look at today, um, because the whole Bible is, is given to us um, for, our, for our good, for us to be molded into the likeness of Christ. And, and so I think God is going to going to show us uh, truth in his word today as we go through it together. Um, and so I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to stand before you and, and open God's word together. Uh, so we've reached sort of a halfway point through our book of Exodus. Now, I think, there's, I think there's 40 chapters, so we're not exactly halfway, but sort of in the narrative, uh, we, are, we are about halfway. Um, I believe this is, uh, if I, my back count is correct, uh, this is the 29th sermon that we've had uh, since we started the book of Exodus. And if all goes according to plan, we should have about 29 more uh, after today, you know, assuming we don't, you know, reshape that a little bit, but, but around about that. So we began in January of this year, going through the book of Exodus, starting with verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 1. And then we will likely arrive at the end of the book of Exodus, our journey of deliverance through the book, uh, around probably the beginning of next summer. Uh, so we're still, we're still going to be here a while. Uh, like I said, this is, a, this is roughly the halfway point. And as we arrive at Exodus chapter 18 today, uh, not only is it sort of the halfway point in the narrative, but it's also sort of a turning point in the journey of deliverance that we're, that we're walking through. Thus far, most of the stories in the book of Exodus have been pretty flashy stories, stories that you've probably heard before and probably stories that are familiar uh, for people who have been within earshot of a church at some point in their life. I mean, there's been multiple movies made about most of what we've covered in the book of Exodus, right? Um, And in fact, most people who don't even believe the Bible or care about what it has to say have some familiarity uh, with the stories of the plagues of Egypt, with the story of the parting of the Red Sea, uh, many people have heard of uh, God providing manna from heaven, God providing water from a wa- rock. In fact, I even heard on the radio the other day in, in reference to something political, somebody mentioned this is, oh, this is manna from heaven. You know, it's just a figure of speech. So people have some familiarity with, with the book of Exodus. Um, you know, these stories are kind of flashy, uh, and today is not as flashy, right? Today is really a simple narrative that we're going to look at together. And in fact, much of where we are headed in the book of Exodus is much less theatrical, uh, much less dramatic, much less movie-worthy, and perhaps even less vivid in our minds when we think about the book of Exodus. Most of what we probably think of is what we've already covered. Um, So one, that gives us a cool opportunity to dwell on probably lesser dwelled-on text uh, together. And then remember that the whole Bible is the infallible Word of God, right? It was, the whole thing was given to us, as Second Timothy says, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so there is absolutely truth to be gleaned here that God, through the power of His Holy, Spirit's, can, His Holy Spirit, there's one Holy Spirit, uh, can open our hearts to understand and He can apply it to our lives. 
So the journey of deliverance through the book of Exodus thus far has been really the journey of God's people being rescued from bondage in Egypt and then venturing into the wilderness where God then rescues them from thirst and from hunger. And then last week we saw he rescued them from their enemy, the Amalekites. And all of these acts of deliverance, these, these great rescues that God does, are really rescue from external factors. But again, this is sort of a turning point. Um, the book of Exodus, really at this chapter and going forward, turns more internal. As God doesn't really have these external factors for a while to, to rescue his people from, so he begins to rescue them internally. He re- begins to rescue them from themselves. He gives to get, begins to give his people precepts for how to live as people who are free. So this is really an ongoing journey of deliverance because the, the act of deliverance just shifts a bit to be more, again, being more rescued from themselves. And I don't want you to think that it's going to get less exciting, though, because this ongoing act of deliverance is no less miraculous because through these remaining chapters, God will more fully reveal who he is and how his newly liberated people can know him. And how they can thrive living in the freedom that he has made possible for them. So the title of today's uh, sermon is Flourishing in Freedom. And that's really going to be the theme going forward. How God gives these precepts to his people for them to thrive as free people. If we see the story of Exodus as I think we have as we've gone through it. As something that's sort of parallel to our spiritual journey through, through the Christian life. Then thus far, again, God has rescued his people from external factors. And so God's salvation of his people uh, from bondage in Egypt sort of parallels the first part of our salvation, if if we line those up, right? And the first part of that is justification, the point at which we are saved, the point at which we are made right with God, that we are rescued from our bondage to sin and from death and from the enemy, uh, Satan, and we are made free, So this next part of the journey then, through the wilderness, sort of parallels the next part of our salvation. So So we are justified at the moment that we are saved, but then throughout our lives we are sanctified. That is the, the ongoing process of being made like Christ. The process by which God refines us, he molds us, he shapes us continually by the power of his Holy Spirit and the wisdom of his word to make us more and more and more and more like Christ. But again, this is still part of salvation. And so it's not less miraculous. It's not less divine just because it isn't as theatrical or dramatic. In fact, I would argue that the saint who perseveres through sanctification through the end should marvel at the the miraculous process that's taken place in their life. This isn't just a single miracle, this process of sanctification. It's a million little daily miracles that keep us on this spiritual trajectory toward righteousness. So it truly is miraculous. It is the work of God in us. And as we venture through this journey of deliverance with God's people in the wilderness, remember God was not only at work in the events of this narrative that we're going to look at together, but God is at work in your heart if you are saved. He's like the potter forming the clay. And he can and he will use these scriptures 
to continually sanctify your heart, to keep you on that trajectory toward righteousness. And again, don't think that it's not miraculous. It is. Those million little daily miracles are God at work in you, making you more like Christ, refining you. So let's briefly recap what brought us, uh, where we are in the narrative today. Uh, And then we'll continue on with that narrative and see what God wants to teach us there. So God, of course, has set his people free from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. Then they get out of Egypt, and then they almost get, not, get taken back into slavery. But then God rescues them through parting the waters of the Red Sea, and they walk through on dry ground. God brings the waters back down on Pharaoh and his army, and the people sing. They rejoice. They worship the God of their salvation together. And then they set out on a journey toward the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land together. But pretty quickly, they forget about the coming milk and honey, and they get thirsty, and they get hungry, and they get scared. So God makes water that is bitter sweet for them to drink. And then he provides manna, bread from heaven, and quail for them to eat. And then they run out of water again, and the people whine again. And God provides water from the stricken rock that we saw is a type of Christ. And then uh, they are under attack from the people of Amalek, and God gives his people their first military victory over his enemies by having Moses go up on the hill and lift his hands and the staff of God. And when Moses gets worn out, uh, Aaron and Hur come alongside him and hold his hands up. And God's people are victorious over Amalek. Uh, Kevin DeYoung describes the journey that we are on uh, he, up to this point. He describes it like this. He said, we've been tracing the Israelites as they made their journey from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And each step of, along the journey has taught them a different lesson. The Red Sea was the place of salvation. Mara was the place of testing. Elim was the place of rest. The wilderness of sin was the place of provision. Massa and Meribah was the place of warning. Rephidim, that we looked at last week, was the place of battle. And here at the foot of Horeb, also called Sinai, we have the place of help. And so this brings us to where we are today, Exodus chapter 18, where we're going to hang out. So if you have a a holy book or a holy app, as Stephen likes to say, uh, open it to Exodus chapter 18. We're going to read the whole thing together. And the words will be on the screen behind me in the ESV. It says this. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. That's what Gershom means. I'm sure you figured that out. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, If you didn't catch that, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. said that, I think, four times so far. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out 
to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Part two of the narrative. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statues and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men uh, from all the people. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all those people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Let's pray. God, thank you for the wisdom that is contained in your word. Lord, and even those who don't believe in it can look at it and know that, Lord, it's just good. Lord, there's so much to be gleaned from it. But God, thank you that it is not just some stale ancient text that recounts a a narrative with no relevance. God, thank you that it is living and active. God, that you speak to our hearts through it. God, that you apply it to our lives and mold us with it. God, please do that today. God, thank you uh, for Moses' proclamation of of your gospel to Jethro. And Lord, his response of salvation. Lord, may we see in that, Lord, a model for how we can proclaim the gospel. God, thank you too for the wisdom of of Jethro in in showing Moses how he could most efficiently uh, lead God's people. Lord, by sharing the burden with others. Lord, help us learn how to do that as well today. God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it is powerful. 
God, and if nothing I say matters today, Lord, let your word do its work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, Moses is camped out here with God's people at Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. And they are, they are encamped there at the mountain of God. So it's referred to by all three names, mountain of God, Horeb, Sinai, same place. And at some point, uh, we don't know exactly when, but we know from the beginning of chapter 18 that Moses had sent Zipporah, his wife, and their two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, uh, back to Midian to stay with his father-in-law, uh, Jethro, there in Midian. That's Z- Zipporah's father. And we don't know how long they were there, but we can assume it was for a little while. And we also don't know exactly why Moses sent Zipporah and his sons uh, away, but we can assume it's probably at least somewhat for their safety. Um, you know, there was, they endured a lot of hardship, thirst, hunger, battle. Uh, and so, you know, he might have also wanted them to have to be able to avoid the harsh realities of travel. Or maybe he even sent them away to keep them away from these whining Israelites. I mean, you know their whining was bad when Moses didn't even want his sons, who were probably fighting and whining and doing, you know, what kids do. Uh, he didn't want them to have to be around the even bigger children, the people of Israel. Moses, we're thirsty. Moses, we're hungry. Moses, take us back to Egypt. Moses, you're just trying to kill us. Moses, these people are whiners. Regardless of why uh, Moses sent him away, though, we know at the beginning of this chapter, uh, Zipporah, her father Jethro, and her sons, uh, her and Moses' sons, Gershom and Eliezer, are reunited with Moses there at the foot of the mountain of God. And apparently, uh, we also see at the beginning of the chapter, uh, that this Yahweh God, uh, his reputation was getting around because of what he had done to take out the most powerful ruler and army in the world at the time. And so Jethro had heard rumors of this story that this Yahweh God was up to something and he wanted to come hear it for himself. Now Moses and Jethro, of course, were, they knew each other well. In fact, Moses, the Bible tells us, was in Midian for 40 years working as a shepherd for Jethro. Between the time that he fled Egypt after killing the Egyptian and, and, he, and he fled and he ended up in Midian where he uh, found uh, Zipporah, his, his wife. And uh, Jethro employed him as a shepherd. And then 40 years later, God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. And, and then, you know, he, of course, goes and all, we read all the events that uh, took place for him to lead his people to freedom. So, but Moses was with Jethro for 40 years before all that stuff happened. So the warm welcome that we see at the beginning of this chapter is probably a long-awaited family reunion there. We also see uh, that, I think this is spoken of when Jethro first comes on the scene, which, by the way, uh, earlier in the book of Exodus, uh, Jethro is referred to as, I believe, Raul or something like that. Same guy. There's just multiple names for, for people here. Um, there's no question that that guy and this guy are Moses' father-in-law because the text says it like 18 times. Um, and so we know that Jethro was a priest in Midian, But he wasn't a priest of Yahweh, the one true God. He was a priest of the Midianite gods. And so so Jethro does not yet trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. But verse 1 tells us that he is curious. It says he heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. 
So Jethro is, again, a priest of false gods. He is lost, but the Holy Spirit is drawing him. He is curious. And so I think there's something for us to learn from the way that Moses receives him, his lost father-in-law that he loves. So the first thing I want us to see today is that Moses demonstrates for us a model for evangelism. Now there are a couple of ways that Moses does this in this book, and I want to look at, look at both of them. And both of them are Moses showing God, the one true God, to Jethro. The first way that Moses demonstrates evangelism for us is by showing love to Jethro. Now Moses shows Jethro love and respect by going out to meet him, by bowing down to him, and by kissing him on the cheek. That probably is not the way that I would greet my father-in-law because that would be kind of weird, but it was the customary uh, sign of love and respect at the time. Moses is genuinely happy to see his father-in-law, and he doesn't treat him as a stranger, even though he is, probably because Moses himself wasn't treated as a stranger when he was in the land of Midian. Uh, Moses, who most biblical scholars agree, wrote the book of Exodus. Again, he repeatedly refers to Jethro as his father-in-law in this chapter. He doesn't want you to forget who this is. And so that really hammers home the closeness of their relationship. If Moses is the guy pinning this, he didn't have to keep repeating that, but he did. He wanted you to remember, this guy's my father-in-law. This guy's my family. I love this guy. I respect this guy. And Moses had really become a pretty big deal since the last time he had seen Jethro. You know, back in Midian, Moses was just a a sojourner shepherd there, working for his wife's dad. But by now, you know, Moses has a reputation. He's led a couple of million people out of slavery under the world's most powerful ruler. He's important. He's probably, actually we know, that he's very busy. But yet, when his father-in-law comes to visit him, Moses humbles himself. He goes out and he greets Jethro. He breaks bread with him. And he shows him genuine hospitality there. Now, I think what we can learn today is that this is necessary. It is so important for us to point people to Christ, for us to show them love. Now, it's so easy for us to be too important or too busy or too broke or too occupied to show people God's love. Or more accurately, it's easy for us to think that we are too important or too busy or too broke or too preoccupied to show people God's love. Yet, we often have the audacity to wonder, God, why don't I have opportunities to share the gospel? We have the opportunities. We just miss them because we are so preoccupied with our lives. It's been said uh, by... President Teddy Roosevelt, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And in that same vein, commentator Philip Ryken said that sometimes what turns people away from Christ is not his gospel, but our failure to live by its love. Church, if we ever hope to be able to tell people the good news of Christ, we must first show them the genuine love of Christ. And this means putting people's needs ahead of our own needs. This means slowing down. It means humbling ourselves like Moses did. And it means serving those around us. 
It means standing for the oppressed. It means fighting against injustice. It means feeding the hungry. It means caring for orphans and widows. The Bible is literally filled with exhortations for us to show the love of God to those around us. Ezekiel 16, 49 tells us that one of the primary sins of Sodom, which led to its destruction by God, was not its namesake sin. No, Ezekiel tells us was, was that they did not help the poor and needy. 1 John three seventeen says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Philippians 2 that we read earlier says, Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. James 1.27 says that religion that is pure and that is undefiled before the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James goes on in chapter 2 to say, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving them the things that is needed for the body, what good is that? 1 Peter 4, 9 and 10 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then perhaps the most clear words commanding this to show love to each other is from, are from Christ himself in John 13, 35, where he says, By this people, all people will know that you are my disciples. What? If you have love for one another. Clearly, this is necessary to evangelism. It's necessary for being Christ to the world. Showing love to those around us is essential to biblical Christianity. And Jesus not only talked about it, he also modeled it for us. Author Gary Thomas says this about Jesus showing love. He says, Jesus placed his own needs under the needs of others. He had a more important mission to accomplish than anyone who has ever lived. And yet, he still found time to care for the basic needs of a sick, hungry, and unruly crowd. It's so easy to ignore the needs of others around us because we have, quote, more important things to do. But Jesus defined those very needs as a central part of our mission. Church, showing love is not optional for Christians. It's not optional for the church. I don't hear what I'm not saying. If we, if we stop there, if we settle for only showing love, simply a hospitable lifestyle, then don't, don't mishear me. If we, if we stop there, we miss the gospel. Many self-proclaimed Christians, and worse, many self-proclaimed Christian churches backburner the actual gospel or ignore it altogether, and they see the role of just showing the love of Jesus to the world as the church's primary mission, or in the most egregious circumstances, the, the church's only mission. They, they believe the gospel is simply about how we live. Now, as we just discussed, the gospel certainly has massive implications for the way that we live and how we respond to things in the world like suffering and injustice. 
But the gospel is about the words that we speak. In fact, the gospel is news. And news must be proclaimed. We cannot effectively declare the gospel if we don't show the love of God. But showing love is not the same as declaring the gospel. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. We cannot effectively declare the gospel without showing love. But showing love is not sharing the gospel. Philip Ryken says, It's not enough to love the lost without also giving them the good news. And so Moses provides a good example for us again here. Because Moses did show love. He was hospitable. But he also went on to share the gospel. And that's part two of this model of evangelism for us. In verse 8 of Exodus 18, it says, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. See, this was Moses' good news of God's salvation. And Moses was pumped up about it. He couldn't help but talk about it. And so he wanted to share this gospel, this good news of God's salvation with Jethro, his pagan, pagan priest's father-in-law. And so he does that. He shares the good news of Israel's salvation. And he recounts their suffering. He recounts the plagues. He tells him about the Passover, how God provided a substitute lamb. He tells him about the Red Sea, how God made a way when there seemed to be no way. And he tells him about how God provided, uh, he made bitter water sweet. How he provided bread and he provided quail and how he brought water from a rock. And how God defeated his enemies. And notice how this whole story that Moses tells Jethro is God-centered. God is the one who does all the saving when Moses tells it. Verse 1 mentions how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Verse 8 recounts all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And how the Lord had delivered them. See, this is not the story of God's people mustering divine strength and mounting a battle on Pharaoh, fighting their way out of bondage. No, in fact, the Israelites contributed precisely nothing to their salvation except the need for it. Think back with me. At first, the Israelites told Moses to leave them alone because they didn't believe they could be rescued. Then after God does it and brings them to the Red Sea, their helplessness is on full display as God single-handedly rescues his people in parting the waters and making a way out. Then, not a week later, what do the Israelites back up to? Complaining in their thirst and in their hunger about how horrible it is and how great it used to be at the meat pots in slavery in Egypt. See, in this story, God is the rescuer. And he alone gets the glory from this great work of deliverance. And so too is our story. As the quote often attributed to Jonathan Edwards says, as I said a minute ago, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. See, the story of salvation, and for that matter, the story of the whole Bible, is not how we can somehow find our way to God, but how God reaches down to us, how He pursues us, how He rescues us, how He keeps us. This is God's story. Praise God that He alone is mighty to save, and we are weak and we are feeble, but He rescues anyway. 
And that because of that mighty work of salvation, we have indescribably good news to share. News that should make us excited. News that we shouldn't be able to keep out of our mouths. Because it is great news. That we have nothing, but God has everything and he offered it to us. Come on, there's nothing better. And praise God that because he has already purposed to save a people for himself, that when we proclaim that good news, that God saves to a lost world, that God will save, people will respond to this good news. The Holy Spirit works in people's hearts to draw people to God. We see that with Jethro. And that's the third thing I want you to see today, is what a response to the gospel looks like. A genuine response to the gospel. Verses 9 through 12 say that Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, oh, this is, this is good. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. He said, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Then it says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering, and he brought sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. See, Moses proclaims the good news to Jethro. And Jethro is clearly affected by that good news that Moses shares with him. His response isn't, oh, cool story, bro. You know, that might make a good movie one day. None of the movie parts are over. His response is, blessed be Yahweh. Now I know that he is greater than all gods. Jethro's fully convinced that the God of Israel is the one true God. Jethro puts saving faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, after hearing this good news. Jethro's converted. He realizes that all of those, those ridiculous, defeated Egyptian gods... And all those gods that he served as a Midianite priest were nothing. That only the infinitely superior, mighty God of Israel had the ability to do what had been done for his people. That only a God like that could be a true God. And he knew it. Not only is, Je is Jethro convinced in his mind that this is true, but we see he is also convinced in his heart Verse 9 says that he rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done. See, Jethro's natural response to the gospel was worship. Joyful, celebratory worship. Evidenced through his rejoicing and then his burnt offerings that he offers to God. See, when we have a real encounter with the one true God, the living God, the only possible response to that it's humble worship and adoration. That's why the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We see this in uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, a passage you're probably familiar with, we've looked at before. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah encounters God there. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his faith, face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And Moses wasn't like, oh man, this is cool. No, I mean, excuse me, not, not Moses. Isaiah. Isaiah's response when he saw this beautiful display of the glory of God was, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah counters God. He recognizes his own depravity. And there he is saved. And then it says he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah's response is, Here am I. Send me. See, when we catch a glimpse of this glorious, holy God that we worship, we cannot help but recognize our own depravity. We cannot help but recognize our desperate need for his saving grace. So church, the only way that we will become genuine, passionate worshipers is by first seeing the awe-inspiring beauty of the almighty and holy God. And then our response will be worship. And it will be submission to his will. And we will be able to proclaim like Isaiah, here am I, send me. So Jethro, back to our narrative today, hears this good news. He responds in worship to this good news. And then Jethro is welcomed into the worshiping community of the people of Israel. He shares a communal meal with Aaron and the elders. And so this is for us then as evangelists, which we are all called to be, by the way, the pattern of response to the salvation of someone. When people are saved by grace through faith in Christ, they begin to give God glory through sacrificial lives that should be lived out in community with other believers. Namely, that's us, the church. It's important that we don't proclaim a cheap gospel that simply calls people to have some sort of emotional experience or just repeat some words. But we should proclaim a complete gospel that calls them not just to understand the truth of the gospel, but calls them to live sacrificially for God's glory in a community of believers that will support and love and encourage and discipline and teach and equip and serve alongside one another. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. The Bible calls us into community when we come into Christ. And so Jethro was welcomed into that faith community of God's people there at the mountain of God. And immediately, Jethro begins to use his gifts to help organize God's people. So I want to look at that second chunk of the narrative today. And there's a lot of different ways you could study this text, verses 13 through 27. You, you might look at them as a prescriptive approach for how to organize a system of governance, either for you know, local government or for you know, whatever sort of organization. Indeed, uh, many churches and organizations and even governments do look to this chapter of Scripture uh, and use its organizational structure as a model. And after all, it's a good model, right? I mean, Moses is doing everything himself, and Jethro says, whoa, man, going to wear yourself out. You need to delegate. It's an organized biblical model of governance. And you could study it that way. 
You also could read uh, this passage as a prescription for effective leadership or mentorship. See, Moses has learned, Moses, excuse me, Moses learns that you shouldn't hoard all the power and wear yourself out. But instead, you're supposed to surround yourself with competent deputies so you can delegate authority to them. And as a result, you're a better leader of leaders. And the whole uh, organization runs more efficiently. And again, that is a valid application of this text. And you can study that and, and use it to shape your leadership development. You can use it to study how to organize your whatever organization you're a part of. So these are valid lessons to study and to apply from this chapter. But I want to try to take a step back a little bit from the narrative and see a broader principle that's at work here. And it's one that I believe has a broader application to our Christian lives. And so what I want you to see from the second part of this text today is that Moses demonstrates submission to wise counsel. See, Jethro has been around a while. We don't know exactly how old he is, but you know we know he already had grown children when Moses got to Midian. And we know this is... 40 years plus however long all the exodus, you know, the, the deliverance took. So, you know, he's probably over 60 at least. He's been around a while. He's a leader of shepherds. He was a father of a large family. I can't remember. I think Zipporah had like seven sisters and it also mentions sons later. So he had a big family. Um, and Moses, or excuse me, Jethro was a priest for his people. So he was a lead shepherd. He's a, a, a father of a big family and he was a priest for his people. And so he had a lot of experience. He had a lot of wisdom to bring to the table. Even though we saw that Jethro has just now been converted to faith in Yahweh, the one true God, that doesn't discount the wisdom and experience that he brings to the table. In fact, God uses Jethro to speak wise counsel into Moses' life to help him govern the people more effectively. So believe it or not, we can learn a thing or two from our in-laws. You might, you might not believe that, but I, I'm blessed to have a great relationship with Lindsay's parents. And Lindsay's dad, my father-in-law, uh, he knows heat and air, right? And some of you have had to call him before, so you know that he knows, he knows heat and air. He knows it well. He's been doing it a long time. And so a couple months ago, when it was, you know, 120 degrees outside or whatever, it was horrible. Uh, when I came home one evening and my house was 85 degrees inside, I didn't try to pretend like I knew what to do. I didn't uh, look it up on YouTube and try to figure my way out through it, which is what I do with a lot of other things, and it never ends well, so don't do that. Um, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't go the trial and error route because I didn't need trial and error. I had a, an expert on speed dial. So I called my father-in-law, the heat and air expert, and I am not too proud to know my own limitations, to know that Robert's wisdom and experience in heat and air is going to be much more beneficial to me than me thinking that I can just figure it out. And I was right. I mean, I was right in knowing that I couldn't do it. And, and he could. He got it fixed that day, and we went to sleep cool that night. So similarly, when Jethro sees Moses wearing himself out by basically functioning as a one-man judicial system for a couple of million people, whiny people at that, people who probably bought, brought ridiculous things to him. I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of legitimate things too, but we've already seen they're a bunch of whiners. Uh, Jethro tells him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people 
uh, you, wait, excuse me, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone, he says. And he was right. So Jethro, probably based on his wisdom and his experience, lays out a governance structure for Moses so that he can delegate responsibility to other trustworthy men. And Moses, he doesn't respond like an arrogant know-it-all who's like, yeah, you don't, you don't know my people, man. Just You're a shepherd. Why don't you go on back to Midian? No. Moses says in verse 24, it says, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. See, Moses recognized that the experience and wisdom of his newly converted father-in-law was valuable. And so Moses humbly received that wisdom, and he implemented it, uh, the, the wise counsel that Jethro brought to the table. So the application of that for us is that we should never think that we have it all figured out, right? It's easy to think that, especially in the age of having, you know, a, a device in your pocket that does know everything, or at least, you know, you can find pretty good information out there. But we don't have it all figured out. We need each other. Like Jethro told, told him, you cannot do it alone. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, he who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. See, in the church in particular, we should never be so arrogant to assume that we always know what is best. That's why we are called to work as a body, one body with many members. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks, to, speaks of this in verses 14 through 19. It says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, in case you were confused, that's not an anatomy lesson. That is an object lesson for how the church is meant to function. See, this is what is so beautiful about Christ's bride, the church. Each believer is welcomed into the body, not as a spectator, not as a consumer, but as an essential partner with unique strengths and gifts that God uses to better the whole body. That's why at Vintage, we don't call each other members, even though that is the biblical language, but because the term member implies that you're entitled to something. The term partner implies we are in this together. Everyone brings something to the table, and we are meant to share one another's burdens and use it to better the whole body. One body, many members, or in this case, many partners. We can't do it alone. John Calvin wrote, that one ray of sun is not meant to illuminate the whole world. We can't do it all on our own. We need each other. We saw this already in Exodus. Back last week, chapter 17, when, when Moses was physically tired with his hands held up, his brothers came along him to hold him up. 
And in Exodus 18, Moses is worn out, maybe not physically, but emotionally and intellectually. And so that he learns there that God has placed people all around him who he can share his burdens with. It's almost like at Amalek, God was like, okay, I'm going to teach you this, Moses. And then he didn't get it. So he had to bring Jethro in and be like, okay, okay, you need to rely on other people, not just, you know, that was, that was a lesson. Ultimately, the function, functioning of the community of believers doesn't depend on, on Bryce or Stephen or me or anybody else here. It doesn't depend on one person. The functioning of the community of believers, this faith body that we're a part of, depends on God working through the many. And it's only in this beautiful faith community that we are able to flourish in the freedom that God has given us. That we are able to fully live out the gospel-inspired lives of love that we are called to. And it is only in this faith community that we can fully equip one another to declare the gospel. What wonderful news that we cannot do it alone. But we don't have to. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to be in it together. That we are called to flourish in relationship within a community of saints. To worship together. To be molded by God's word together. And then to go out on mission together. As we share the gospel. As we show the love of Christ. And as we draw people into this faith community together. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. God, we thank you that if we have understood what it means for us, Lord, if you have applied its truth to our hearts and planted it deep within, God, that we don't have to go it alone. God, for you have called us to be a part of a body, each one of us, Lord. God, thank you that you have assembled Vintage Church that way. Lord, this isn't some uh, nice flowery language about the universal church, the historical church only, Lord, but it's about vintage church, that we are one body with many members. And God, thank you for the strengths, for the wisdom, for the experience that each person brings to the table. God, may we be a community that worships passionately together. Lord, that thinks biblically together. Lord, that flourishes in relationship with each other. Lord, and that is sent out on mission together to proclaim the gospel to a world that needs to hear it so badly. Lord, a world that is lost and desperate without it. But God, when we proclaim that gospel, maybe we do so in a way that is thorough. God, that first shows people your love, but doesn't stop there. Lord, for what kind of love is it? that doesn't tell people that they need saving. God, may we be people who love people so much, not just to be hospitable to them. God, but to tell them the good news of what Christ has done. And God, as a result of us proclaiming the gospel, Lord, we know that you save. Lord, so we ask you to do that. Lord, to draw people into your body. Lord, to adopt them into your, into your eternal family. God, to transform lives. Lord, let your gospel do its work. Lord, and motivate us to proclaim it. 
And God, thank you for the model that we have in Scripture to do that. Lord, as we're able to continue worshiping you now through the taking of communion, Lord, may you be glorified. Lord, and may you send us out to live and work to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.